Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Lauren Cagle about environmental rhetoric and climate change, technical communication, scientific communication, and disability studies. Lauren Cagle is an assistant professor of writing, rhetoric, and digital studies, and associate faculty in environmental and sustainability studies at the University of Kentucky. Her research and teaching focus on overlaps among digital rhetorics and scientific and technical communication. Cagle frequently works with local and regional environmental and technical practitioners. Her collaborative partners include the Kentucky Division for Air Quality, the Kentucky Geological Survey, the University of Kentucky Recycling Program, and the Arboretum State Botanical Garden of Kentucky. Cagle's work has appeared in Technical Communication Quarterly, the Journal of Technical Writing and Communication, Rhetoric Review, and Computers and Composition. Kegel, thanks so much for joining us. You teach classes on environmental rhetoric and climate change communication and policy, which I feel like is extremely relevant given global conversations and current conditions. Can you talk more about your approach to teaching and how you center environmental rhetoric and conversations on climate change in the writing classroom. I would love to talk about that. Um, In terms of the relevance, I remember joking with other environmental rhetoricians in 2016, um, fall of 2016 and early 2017, like one of those, not really a ha-ha joke, more like a joke of, oh, we never wanted our work to be this relevant. Um, You know, uh, particularly those of us who had been working on kind of climate denial um, over the, the previous years. And it went from being a, I read the comments on internet forums to I pay attention to what the uh, director of the EPA says. Um, in terms of the classroom and environmental rhetoric, I'm in a writing and rhetoric um, department. So we're the Department of Writing, Rhetoric and Digital Studies at the University of Kentucky. So I'm really fortunate in that we actually have majors and minors who are really interested in rhetorics of all different kinds. And so I get to teach like really dedicated environmental rhetoric courses occasionally. But as is true for so many rhetoricians and especially those of us who also are in tech comm, which is my kind of original home technical communication. I also teach a lot of courses um, that get designated as service courses, although I have some issues with that language. So I teach uh, technical writing for engineers, animal sciences majors, neurosciences. Um, I frequently teach a course called Writing in the Social Sciences, which is um, for political science majors primarily, but we also get like historians and anthropologists. And then a Writing in the Natural Sciences course, which is maybe my favorite right now because it dovetails so well with a lot of um, collaborative research that I do with scientists these days. Um, And that's mostly for chemists, uh, biology majors, and earth and environmental science majors. So in those courses, I don't necessarily have as a topical focus, like environmental rhetoric or climate communication and policy. But what I found is that I can use that area of expertise as a, a kind of center point for the course when I'm selecting sample readings, for example. So if we're working on an assignment where students are learning how to read scholarly literature, I'll select published peer-reviewed papers that are about climate change or environmental issues in some way. Um, Not necessarily environmental rhetoric, right, depending on the majors that I'm teaching. So it might be 
a published study about um, climate policy for the poli-sci students. It might be a published study about various kinds of like environmental engineering on college campuses for the engineers and so on. And what I found is that students can all sink their teeth into that. Even if students aren't, don't self-identify as environmentalists or, or this isn't like a major part of their identity or, or focus out in the world, it's still something that they're aware of and is a an unfortunately kind of universal topic right now, these questions. And then it's very exciting when I do get to teach the kind of more focused topical classes and, and get to have these conversations with students about like, what do we even mean when we say the word environment? <laughs> um, so one of my favorite assignments I've ever done was in an environmental rhetoric class. So the class itself was called Rhetoric of the Environment and Climate Change. Now I'm blanking. It was a special topics class. So I had to come up with a descriptive title. And we did this um, course, like collaborative project. I had 10 students and uh, we made a course Instagram. So we all shared a login, um, but everyone posted anonymously. So no one knew who had posted which picture. The semester, throughout the semester, we had guiding questions. So for like the first third of the semester, it was like, what is the environment? And then students would take pictures to answer that question. So it was inspired actually by photo voice, um, which is a research method that I've used in my research. I mean, this is really a, a key takeaway, I guess, from all of this is that my research and my teaching really bleed into each other. And so by the end of the semester, we had this Instagram feed where you had seen the evolution of students thinking about questions like, what is the environment? Is there a difference between environment and nature? Um, where it had started with like, you know, pictures of trees um, and then evolved into pictures of litter uh, because they were suddenly noticing the built environment. And then suddenly they're posting like house plants, right? Like nature brought into their own personal environments. So it was this really great experience. And then we did a world cafe at the end of the semester, which is a participatory method um, that comes out of community organizing, actually, where you do this, these kind of round robin approaches to brainstorming where students cluster in different groups and, and have these kind of timed activities to answer questions. And then we all sort of come together at the end and share. And so we came up with kind of a shared definition of environment and nature based on that. So that was really fun. And also really, I think, insightful for both them and me. Um, the last thing I want to say on the teaching environmental rhetoric and climate policy is that because of my interest in the environment and climate, I've been able to develop a multi-year partnership with um, Roberta Burns, who is the um, primary education person at the Kentucky State Division for Air Quality. Um, she actually heard me speak. Um, I was one of the featured speakers at the March for Science in 2017 here in Lexington, which for folks who don't know Kentucky, Lexington is the second largest city and is a little like blue pocket in a red state. Um, but, you know, the idea of a red state is is really reductive. Um, we have a lot of folks in Kentucky who care a lot about environmental issues, even folks who don't vote necessarily the way that you think they would. So we had a turnout of over a thousand people at this March for Science and Roberta heard me speak about climate denial. And so she found me in the crowd after and was like, hey, I work for the Division for Air Quality. I would love to work with you on stuff. And so we've been um, co-teaching courses for over, yeah, we've done three courses over the last um, 10 years. And then that um, partnership has expanded into all these other realms. So we do 
Um, we've done a series of like lunch and learn workshops for the Kentucky Association of Government Communicators. We presented at the North American Association for Environmental Educators together. Um, and just this past spring, we actually led a series of workshops for state government on web accessibility. Um, actually not web accessibility per se, more like digital accessibility. So making PDFs and PowerPoints and Word documents accessible. Um, and that partnership, we have a book chapter coming out that we co-authored, which is really exciting. She was like, I never thought I would write a book chapter. And I was like, put it on your resume um, about our partnership, which we talk about in terms of participatory action teaching, um, inspired by the tradition of participatory action research, where we have these like this relationship that has really escaped the boundaries of what we traditionally think of as service learning. So I guess um, that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but again, I think the through thread is that I don't really see a lot of distinctions between the teaching, the research, the personal interests. It's not that I'm looking for ways to combine them. It's just that those ways kind of bubble up and impose themselves, whether I want them to or not. Kegel, how does environmental rhetoric intersect and or inform what you do in technical communication? I also think that this question might lead to defining scientific communication and your work through that and what scientific communication means to and in different disciplines. And that might set the stage for talking a little bit about your approach to teaching technical writing. I was really glad for the opportunity to reflect on like the intersection of environmental rhetoric and, and tech comm. Um, just in the last week. Um, so for listeners who don't know, Shane sent me the questions ahead of time. So I had a chance to think about it. So thank you, Shane. I just wrote an abstract for um, the uh, American Geophysical Union Conference, which is a um, conference, academic conference for geologists. Uh, I've been working for the last, let's see, uh, two years now, I guess, um, with uh, the director of the Kentucky Geological Survey, Bill Hanneberg, who is an incredibly accomplished geologist. Um, he's an expert on landslides and um, deep water drilling, among other things. And he and I wrote a grant together two years ago that was funded by the National Academy of Sciences. So shout out to them. They have a standing committee on science communication. And our project was to identify new stakeholders that KGS, the geological survey, hasn't traditionally reached out to, and then figure out how to engage with them. And that project got started because Bill came to me and said, we, we had already met kind of through environmental stuff on campus. Um, so this is a long-winded way of, of talking about how environment is not disciplinary. We had met through just environmental things on campus, and then he had invited me to give a talk at a seminar that KGS um, hosts every year for their stakeholders, and that had gone really well. So he came to me and said, you know, I, I really want to start reaching non-traditional stakeholders. Like, do you want to get in on this? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I said, okay, so who are we trying to reach? And he said, I don't know. And I said, okay, let's start there. Um, right. So a lot of times science communication, um, which is not owned by rhetoric, like when people say science communication, they mean a lot of different things. Um, when scientists say it, they usually mean other professional scientists who communicate with publics as a hobby. Well, not necessarily a hobby. There are folks who have taken it on as sort of like a full-time thing, like Catherine Hayhoe, for example, who is a um, Texas climatologist 
who is also an evangelical Christian and spent a lot of time doing engagement with those communities. But a lot of times it's like science communication is, you know, a scientist who has a Twitter feed or a scientist who has moved into kind of public communication realm, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example. When folks in communication studies or even the communication side of rhetoric, say science communication, again, a lot of times what they're talking about is kind of public communication. Um, So uh, I'm thinking, for example, of the Yale Climate Change Communication Group, which does incredible work. Um, They're the folks who do the large scale surveys to identify attitudes nationwide around climate change. And they've been doing that longitudinally for a number of years. They also do experimental work. Um, But over here in rhetoric of science and technical communication, um, which is sort of, I think of myself as living in this like Venn diagram of environmental rhetoric, rhetoric of science and tech comm. Over here in rhetoric and tech comm, when we say science communication, we might mean a lot of things, right? So if you think about the roots of rhetoric of science, um, the folks who really sort of kick that field off in the like 70s, more in the 80s, um, we're actually focused on scientists talking to scientists, right? So there was a lot of like, you know, studies of the great men of science and their communication processes. So like, um, you know, work on Charles Darwin's journals, for example, and how he deployed rhetorical appeals um, in order to get around like potential <laughs> charges of um, blasphemy or whatnot. And so when I say science communication, like I might mean a lot of different things because of my rhetorical background, because of my tech background. So, so when Bill was like, Hey, let's find some stakeholders to talk to. It wasn't just, okay, science communication. We're going to make some pamphlets. We're going to make a fancy website. We're going to make some YouTube videos and show them to people. And like, I was like, no, we're going to go to the drawing board we're going to do like a really participatory user-centered, human-centered process. Um, so what we did is we decided to focus on Eastern Kentucky. We wanted to stay in a region where people had sort of like shared geological experiences. And um, the whole thing is just tech comp top to bottom, right? So it's environmental rhetoric in the sense that the question was, you know, who are these stakeholders that KGS is not currently reaching, right? Because a lot of their publications are really technical or they just aren't aware of like who else is out there and might want geological information. So in terms of the the methods and the process and the mindset, that's all tech comm. It's like, we're thinking of these people as experts in their own life. We're thinking of them as users of communication, not passive recipients of like one-way science communication. We're thinking of our methodological approach as a very pragmatic, um, like what's going to work to get us the information that we need. So we're going to like recruit folks through unusual channels because we don't just want the same, like five people who participate in every study about Appalachia, right? We want to really like dig down into the communities and find folks whose perspectives are usually included. Um, We use diary studies, we use photo voice, we did qualitative interviewing, and then we pulled a lot of methods from kind of really hardcore uh, user experience tech comm. So uh, we used desirability testing, um, which is a method that was actually developed at Microsoft to study people's affective responses to software. Um, And we use task-based protocol testing. So saying like, okay, here's a document that we've created, here is a task, like 
you know, you need to figure out who to call after a landslide happens on your land. For me personally, I don't think this is true across the board, but for me personally, environmental rhetoric is kind of the locus of my interests, right? Like the projects that I pick, the collaborators that I work with, the environment is kind of the center point, the, the gravitational well. Um, and then tech comm tends to be the methods and the mindset. Again, you know, a lot of my courses, I'm not teaching environmental rhetoric directly. Again, I'm using the environment or climate change as like a topic um, that I can uh, teach certain skills or help students work through like, you know, practicing how to read or how to cite or things like that. Um, and so we don't necessarily have those conversations about like, what is the environment or what is um, environmental rhetoric. But what I do is, is in those courses, I do absolutely have conversations about what is rhetoric period. Um, and I teach all those courses as rhetorical theory courses. So we do like genre theory, um, and we do activity systems theory. It's hard sometimes to pull these things apart when, when asked something like, how did these different interests intersect? Because I've realized recently, I've been in academia now for 11 years, and I've realized that that time is valuable, not because I've managed to accomplish so many things, but because the perspective that I can bring to my teaching or my research, it, this like sedimented product of all of the things I've been exposed to over those years. So this next question asks you to intersect things again here, because I feel like, you know, your work is is incredibly interdisciplinary and you draw on different theories and frameworks in your teaching and your research. So for example, you also focus on disability studies. In your article, Teaching a Critical Accessibility Case Study in 2016, you encourage technical communication teacher scholars to reimagine the field and reconsider curriculum through disability studies and accessibility. So you wrote that five years ago with Ella R. Browning. Have you seen technical communication as a field grow in its incorporation of disability studies theory and practice and frameworks? And also, what future directions would you like to see TechCom teacher scholars take up when it comes to disability studies? You know, disability studies is for me something that is both personal. Um, it is through doing work with disability studies and reading scholarship that I came to self-identify as disabled. Um, so I have clinical diagnoses of um, major depressive disorder and anxiety. Although as I recently discussed with my therapist, I was like, I feel like the depression cured the anxiety because it just like they're sort of competing impulses um, and the depression won. Uh, so I don't, I might lose that diagnosis at some point, but, um, but it's not, again, it's not the, the driving sort of topical force necessarily for either my research or my teaching in the way that it is for a lot of my colleagues in, in the field. So I'm thinking of, you know, Christina Cedillo and Margaret Price and Stephanie Kirschbaum, um, who just won a mentoring award. Congrats, Stephanie. Jay Dolmage, you know, was hugely influential on my kind of early interest in work. And of course, my colleague who I co-wrote that piece with in graduate school, Ellie, Ella R. Browning, you know, those folks are, are really focused on, on theorizing disability and rhetorics of disability in a way that I take up and use, but I'm not necessarily contributing to kind of that center. So it is like a big challenge to, to be like, 
oh, do I get to say something about like where we are as a disability studies field? And, and the other thing that this question makes me reflect on is Ellie and I wrote that piece in, in graduate school and it was based on an assignment that we had co-developed for technical writing courses. The idea being that to do disability studies pedagogy does not require you to be teaching a quote unquote disability studies class um, that you can incorporate critical disability and critical accessibility into any technical communication classroom. And in some ways, you know, tech comm is such a chameleonic discipline, not just as a sort of research, but as a practice. And so it really lends itself. Um, and this case study approach that we talked about was something where it was like, you know, here's a case study we developed, but you could develop case studies for all kinds of fields. So ours was about emergency evacu- evacuation procedures in New York. But, you know, if you're teaching like health sciences students, you could have them work on a case study associated with critical accessibility issues in hospitals, for example. The idea being, as you said, that, that um, you know, the field can kind of center this work more. But we were graduate students, you know, this was a, a project that we had co-developed um, in a um, practicum course because at USF, um, we had the opportunity to teach a number of tech concourses, but we had to take a practicum. And so I don't know if changes that I've observed in the field since then are because the field has changed or because I've grown as a scholar and gotten to know the field. And I think that's a constant challenge um, for, for academics is to find that balance between making claims about the field versus understanding yourself, right? Like, it reminds me of the thing on that happens on Twitter all the time that where people are like, nobody's talking about X. And it's like, you're just not following the right people. Like lots of people are talking about X. Um, so like lots of people have been working on disability. The place that I think I would love to see the field go. Um, and when I say the field, I don't mean disability studies. I mean like rhetoric and tech comm to think more about accessibility as an everyday practice and as a practice of equity and not just equity for the people who benefit from the accessibility, but equity for the people who are tasked with the labor of creating accessibility. So in the context of the pandemic, this has become incredibly relevant, where suddenly last March, um, pretty much every higher education instructor in the US and many other countries was like, oh, what, okay, online, I guess, is what we're doing. And a lot of instructors who, particularly those who didn't have experience teaching online before, um, sort of picked up the face-to-face modality and just did the closest translation they could into an online. And so that meant, you know, uh, requiring students to come to Zoom sessions, maybe recording them, maybe posting them for students who couldn't come or recording lectures. But the thing about recording video and tasking students with watching them is that video needs to be captioned. Like that's just a a bare minimum for accessibility. And that's not just for students with hearing impairments, although primarily, it's also for students who, it's, it's an access issue for lots of other reasons beside bodily impairment, right? So it's for students who only have time to watch it when they're on the bus going somewhere or they're at the laundromat and they forgot their headphones or they need to be pausing every five seconds and it's a lot easier to keep your place in the video if you have the captions available to check where you are, right? And that's not to say this is instructor's fault for deciding to switch to a video modality, right? Like we've all been doing the best we can over the last three semesters and coming into a fourth pandemic teaching semester. 
Nor is it their fault for not taking the time to caption because I think it's fair to say that many of my colleagues have no training. They don't know what the tools are available. They don't know best practices for captioning, let alone writing alt text for images. If they're uploading a lot of images, let alone making sure that your scan documents are um, run through some kind of optical character recognition program so that the text is readable by a screen reader, right? This is an area of specialization. There are literally people who do this for a living, making things accessible. And so when the pandemic happened and suddenly instructors had this additional burden placed upon them, first of all, many people didn't know that they had this burden because it just wasn't on their radar. And second of all, they didn't have training or support to do it, right? And so I would love to see the field of rhetoric and technical communication really take up these questions seriously. I don't know what the answers are, right? I don't think the answer is to task instructors with doing yet another thing. I think this is an institutional problem um, and institutions need to be providing resources and support, but that doesn't mean that the Center for Teaching puts like a how-to guide online, right? <laughs> That's not sufficient. Um, so we have the theoretical basis, right? And we also have the people in the field who have really thought through like best practices for accessibility and universal design for learning, um, both within our field and then disciplinary studies writ large, or uh, disability studies writ large. And now, now the big challenge facing us is like, okay, how do we use this to make change on our campuses? Thanks, Kegel. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.